0: Preferred Shares is a podcast started by three guys interested in business, history, and business history. We follow our interests and go down the rabbit holes of current and bygone topics. We'll talk about individual companies, product wars, famous founders, forgotten failures, and anything else that strikes our fancy. To find our episodes and show notes, please visit our website at preferredsharespodcast.com. The hosts for the podcast are Devin Lassar, Douglas Ott, and Lawrence Hamtel. Devin is a private investor with a background in design and brand development and is the author of The Invariant Newsletter. Douglas is a founder and chief investment officer at Andvari Associates, a registered investment advisor. Lawrence is a co-founder and principal at Fortune Financial Advisors, also a registered advisor. All opinions expressed by the podcast hosts and guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of their respective employers. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Anvari and Fortune Financial may have positions in any of the securities discussed in this podcast. Hey everyone, welcome back to Preferred Shares. We've got a new episode for you that we're going to focus on another entrepreneur, immigrant founded business similar in the vein as our episode on simplicity pattern. But whereas Simplicity was an immigrant who founded a business making paper dress patterns, this one got a fellow, actually a young, young boy, who started his own business when at the age of 14, I think, selling rat poison to farms in rural Pennsylvania. This is the story of Otto Orkin and the business that he founded in 1901, Orkin One of the North America's and the world's largest pest control businesses that takes care of termites and rats and other rodents and insects all around the world and and primarily based in the United States and North America. We've got Lawrence and I who've read the book, the main book, The Making of the World's Best Pest Control Company. That's the topic of our episode today.
1: So I think this is kind of a uniquely American story where you have a Jewish family that was sort of the victim of pogroms and czarist Russia. Sorry, the Baltic states. And uh, was he from Latvia, Doug? Is that correct?
0: Yeah, his family was from Latvia. And it's a real interesting story. They were, I mean, they would have considered themselves poor, according to the book. They were a farming family living in a Jewish community in Latvia. And things got to be bad in the late 19th century. And they were able as an entire family, to move together all at once to the United States, which was a rarity. It's usually the case that either the father or the oldest son is the one that can only move or immigrate first and then bring the rest of the family after he starts to earn some money. But they had saved the equivalent of about $400 at the time to move the entire family at once, right. which was just incredible.
1: Right, and I think it was one of those things where... Because of the anti-Semitism in that area of the world, they were sort of worked in their favor because the normal policies were somewhat lapsed in the sense that they allowed the family to leave when, as you pointed out, it would have been a little bit more difficult in prior times for the whole family to emigrate away. But what's interesting in the the early story of the Orkin family is, even though they were not particularly wealthy, uh, Otto's father... Had a business savvy that that was uh, obvious from the standpoint of he, he would uh, lease cows, I believe, to some of his neighbors, and and make money that way. So he built a little cattle empire in rural Pennsylvania. Um, oh, yeah, a capital light yeah, uh, business exactly. model. You know, a little cattle lease going on there with the neighbors and making money that way. So even though Otto didn't have much of a formal education, he it's it's evident that his family did have some business savvy, and they owned some real estate in Pennsylvania, and and definitely were somewhat well established in in Pennsylvania as he began his career in extermination.
0: Right, they got established very quickly. It seemed like they, I mean, they got a, a mortgage in Pennsylvania, and immigrants who who could barely speak the English language, and they paid it off very quickly. And you, like you said. The the business savvy was there, the hard work ethic was obviously there. I think Otto in particular just had an obsession with improving his lot in life. You know, one of the other things that the family was doing to earn money on the side was that they had these piles of scrap metal and other junk scattered across their their farmland, and they they sold this scrap to people who needed it to make metal things of their own or to you know sell to someone else. But this was the perfect environment for rats and mice to make their homes in these scrap piles and to antagonize the animals and to invade the home and to eat the food and grains that were inside the home. And so it was Otto's job It was given to him by his family to be the family rat catcher, right?
1: Yeah, and I think one thing that's so far removed from our relatively comfortable lifestyles is how in the the 19th century, which seems like forever ago, but really wasn't all that long ago, people lived in competition with animals for resources. I mean, you didn't just have a lot of food. People were not consuming just copious amounts of calories, and so... Rats were sort of a, a life and death enemy. And not only did they spread disease, but they would eat your, the food for your livestock, which was your livelihood. So it was pretty much a life and death thing. I don't think that's much of an exaggeration to say that. And so pest control was a very important job on the farm brief history of that. I think it goes back to ancient Egypt, where they would keep cats around to eat the the rats and so on, because of the same thing. They knew that the rats spread diseases, and they would the rats would also eat their grains. So there is a little bit of a, a history in the book as well, which is fascinating, about the evolution of the exterminator, and we think of the Pied Piper, and this was a an honored profession in a lot of medieval European towns. There's quite a few cartoons and illustrations.
0: It goes back to how we opened our very first episode, if you remember, about vending machines. I think you began with the history, earliest vending machine, which apparently was, I think, in Egypt, wasn't it? Yes. Was it dispensing holy water, or was it something that's, else? That's
1: correct, yeah. Holy oils or holy waters, yeah.
0: But with this example... Of, of rats in Egypt, early civilizations recognized that rats, they couldn't explain why, but it just seemed disease were associated with rats. But also interestingly, with the Egypt example, is that they also saw the rat as a wise creature, right? Because the rat could choose to eat the best food and it was very discriminating, <laughs> right? Uh, but they still, right. they still try their best to hunt it down.
1: Yeah, the one thing about rats, of course, is that they're highly adaptable. And even though they are a pest, you can't help but admire how they are very flexible and adapt to circumstances and always find a way to survive. In any event, that's a sort of an interesting history. and, And I think with Otto Orkin, he kind of became so skilled at killing rats that he developed his own methodologies. He would make his own poisons. He would sell them in paper bags. And one of the reasons why he would put them in paper bags was he thought that the rats would not touch the poison unless they had previously been handled by human hands. So whether there's any science behind that, I don't know. But he was a legendary founder and I am not. So I will go with his 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 instinct on that.
0: No, I, he he had observational data it does sound like he spent quite a bit of time observing rats in their habits and like the anecdote that you just shared, that the rats would not touch food that was out in the open because for whatever reason they knew through Too good to experience be yeah. or that. Yeah, it just uh, didn't feel safe. But if something was like hidden away in a paper bag and it was hard to get, the temptation could not be resisted.
1: Yeah, they, they like to be rewarded, so to speak. There is a funny story how he would also shoot at the rats. And I think in one of his jobs, he accidentally shot the gas line damn near blew up the entire building. So I think after that, he left his gun at home.
0: This was later in his uh, business career, more as a young adult, when he had moved to Richmond, Virginia. But he started selling this uh, poison door to door in rural Pennsylvania when he was just twelve years old in 1901. And this was a this was a time where there was an easier, simpler, and free solution to rats, which were cats. Another revered symbol in ancient Egypt, Otto, at even that young age, still was not great with English. And there was a lot of, uh, I think it was the Pennsylvania Dutch that are the German speaking. Right. So Otto knew Yiddish and could speak some basic German. And when he was knocking on the doors of these neighbor neighbor farmers, they, they didn't understand the need for poison because they had cats that took care of their rats. And And Otto had the genius of idea of just giving away poison for free. This was very, very early inception of his uh, eventual satisfaction guaranteed marketing and sales tactic and who wouldn't turn down a free sample and to see if it worked or not. And this is kind of what got the ball rolling for auto.
1: You of kind of imagine how uh, <laughs> informal the economy was back then that some traveling <laughs> salesman shows up to your door and offers you free samples of poison <laughs> in a paper bag. But, you know, it worked. And that was just the way that things things worked in the economy back then. It was far less formal. You really didn't have any branded items. There was nothing to distinguish one pesticide or rodenticide from any other. You just sort of went off of what your neighbor said was working for him, and he would give those ideas. And it was very informal, which I think is foreign to us today. But what was totally normal for the economy back then. And you mostly traveled to your neighbors in these rural communities and word spread at the community gatherings, church, and so on. And that's how you built your network of contacts. So giving away the poison for free, giving them not really nothing to lose. And then they would see the effectiveness of it, take you up on your offer, spread the word, and so on. And that's kind of how he developed his, his early client base.
2: What's well, really unbelievable is you have this 14-year-old that's handling arsenic, right? The idea of that, say, occurring today and then going door to door to strangers and saying, here, would you like some free arsenic? Probably wouldn't go over as well
0: as it did for Otto.
1: Said safe to say it would not go over very well. He was, his parents would get a call, at the very least, from the officials.
0: But to get back to Otto, he started this business, I think, He borrowed 50 cents from his parents to buy his first arsenic in bulk. So this is a business that started with blood, sweat, and tears and 50 cents in capital. And we'll eventually share how large it is today.
1: Yeah. And when he... He moved to Richmond. Uh, how old was he, Doug? It was in his twenties?
0: Oh, I don't, I don't remember for sure. It could have been in his twenties or late late teens. But yes, it, he it did doesn't, eventually it doesn't matter. to Richmond.
1: Yeah, so I, I don't recall the circumstances behind why he moved to Richmond, but that was sort of. Well, actually, I, I think it was because he, he recognized that there weren't any other press control names in the book, right? So wasn't it that simple? that's probably right. Yeah, I think it was that yeah, simple. It isn't, yeah, it is. Yeah. There's just no competition. So he, he borderline threw a dart at the board and ended up in Richmond. And he said, OK, well, I'm going to set up shop here. And I think one of his theories was that in the South, that was where he was going to get most of his business because he would say that bugs go South. So you have a lot of circumstances that sort of support why you'd have a more active pest population in the South, and that would be warmer weather, fewer freezes freeze cycles during the winter, favorable patterns like that. And it's interesting to to think about that not too long before Otto Orkin was even born, one of the great innovations in American history was this window screen, which kept pests out of houses in the South, which really transformed the Southern economy. So, you know, he was onto something thinking that most of his fortunes would be made in the South where pests were just a a larger nuisance than in the colder parts of the United States. Now, one little interesting tidbit, of course, is that the South is, at least at that point in time, was considerably less wealthy than the northern part of the country. So you kind of had a trade-off there where the opportunity was larger, but the economics were less favorable. But one of the major things that played a part in his expansion was some help from the U.S. government, which Doug is, if I'm not mistaken, was in the mid-20s after he had made a name for himself in Richmond, he got the opportunity to... Yeah,
0: he had made a name in Richmond to such an extent that within five years after moving to Richmond, he was making $500 a week, and this was uh, in the 1920s, I believe, And he continued to get bigger and better clients. And to talk again about kind of the sales and marketing tactics that he developed to promote the company, one was taking, getting letters of recommendation from clients, getting copies of those so that he could share and promote those in newspapers and telephone books and knocking door to door to solicit other customers. And he also got copies of checks from customers to himself show, to show other people that he had actually been paid for his good services. So things continue to get better and better. And one of the most prominent clients he serviced in Richmond was the Jefferson Hotel, which was, I think, one of the most highest quality hotel in, in Richmond at the time and still exists today. If you're a Markell Corporation shareholder, you've likely spent the night at the Jefferson Hotel during their annual shareholder meeting. But Otto would eventually get a government contract in Alabama from the Army Corps of Engineers that was not in the midst. They had finished construction of the Wilson Dam, which is in the Muscle Shoals area in Northwest Alabama. Dam construction started in, I think, 1918 and was completed by 1925. But the whole area was infested. With rats and rodents, because of all the trash from the construction workers and everything else. And when officials had, you know, they had this large ceremony to turn on to celebrate the turning, the official turning on of the dam. It didn't turn on because of all the rat nests inside the, the wires and the machinery, and it caught on fire. So the the government and Army Corps of Engineers was uh, had found Orkin through various contacts and and, and word of mouth and references. And Orkin was awarded uh, a significant contract to take care of this problem.
1: Yeah, I think actually uh, not, not to correct you, Doug, I think if I'm not mistaken, but wasn't it just uh, a little bit of good fortune and that one of the workers at the dam or officials had heard of Orkin from because he had ties to Richmond. I think it was it was a little little anecdote like that, if I'm if I'm not mistaken. So, you know, he had good fortune on his side there and and Otto got on the train and went down there. And one of the early Orkin people said that he If not for that contract, it's unlikely that Otto would have thought about expanding beyond the Richmond area because he had things going so well for him. Why would he take the risk? But this experience with the government contract helped him recognize the opportunity that was in broadening his services and creating a true network of pest control operations across the American South where there was just a huge need for pest control services.
0: Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. And I think it's it's important to pause and, and recognize kind of the evolution of the business. He started with selling a product that other people would apply on their own. He sold bags of poison and let, let the um, customers place them where they wanted to place them. And then he figured out that it was better to sell a service because customers didn't necessarily know exactly where the best place to put or apply the pesticides or the rat traps or, or other methods that Orkin had developed. And it, it became a service based company signing contracts with businesses and residential homes. And the Alabama dam contract was important, um, not just because he had a large contract to show to other, other government agencies or other large businesses, but it forced him to travel through Atlanta, Georgia, on his way to Alabama, going back and forth between Richmond and Atlanta, was yet another place in the South, large growing city that had no pest control business. Even in the 1920s, no pest control business was listed in the phone book. No right. competition. You
1: know, it sounds simple, but the logic is flawless. Correct. I mean, <laughs> why, go go where there's no competition. Then and-
0: yeah, you want to. What does Buffett and Munger say? You, you want to be in the position of shooting fish in the barrel. Go to where right. the competition isn't.
1: Right. Yeah. But the the downside, so to speak, of this expansion was that Otto was not a particularly skilled administrator. And so they had this sort of disjointed corporate organization where some territory managers were compensated and different agreements with others in different parts of the country. And so it was really sort of a patchwork operation. And good thing the internet didn't exist back then because you can just guessed that they would be uh, lighting up the group chats with their, <laughs> their disparate compensation agreements, and you're earning this, I'm only earning that, and so on. And, but it was quite a little bit disorganized, but Otto was primarily concerned with how much money he had in the bank at any given day there's a little bit of that immigrant mindset there where you're sort of focused on the amount of hard cash that you have on hand. And that was sort of how he kept tabs on the performance of the company. He didn't really have much day-to-day interest in the uh, finances and how fast they were growing. It was mostly how much cash was in the bank. And also he was hyper-focused on any lost client accounts. He obsessed over why they would lose any accounts. And then of course he would call his managers and so on at two or three in the morning and surprise them and ask, Why did you lose this client and what are you doing to get that client back? So that was kind of how he saw fit to run his his company and and it worked well enough for them, but it was not the most efficient way to run a large organization.
0: Yes, for the I mean, for the longest period of time in the company. It seemed very ramshackle, and or if, is that a word? Kind of no rhyme or reason, making things up as he went along, which worked for a long time. But, I mean, it could have been better for a long period of time. And and throughout most of the history under the Orkin family and Otto himself, it just seemed like a long series of constant reorganizations, rejiggerings, and um, into different territories, and trying to stand slowly, slowly standardize operations and procedures up until the 1960s. But one of the, like, like you mentioned, Lawrence, the, the two things that he was obsessed with when it came to the business was losing customers and how much money was in the bank. And just to give you some examples on that, one of the things that Otto told employees was you can get money back, but a customer you might not get back. So that was that was the reason behind his obsession there and in why he <laughs> I mean he would he would go to bed at like 9 or 10 p.m. set his alarm so that he could wake up at 2 a.m. or 3 a.m. to make those you know calls to his branch managers to hold their feet to the fire about lost customers right. um told people it's better to have 10 $5 accounts rather than one Fifty dollar account because if you lost one five dollar account, you'd still have forty five dollars left. But if you lost the one big one, you'd have zero.
1: So his early concept of uh, anti fragility to uh, think in the Taleb terms, I guess.
0: Yeah, having more customers and more diversified business. Uh, certainly, I'm 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 sure he didn't think in those terms, but um, whatever made sense to Otto, he absolutely did. I think that the what goes along what goes along with that the third thing I want to say is that he was obsessed with customer service you know I think that was the over overarching priority for Otto. and've we've, we've heard a lot recently with Charlie Munger having passed away some of the, the sayings and and phrases that he has always shared with others is to provide the service that you yourself would want to buy if you were on the other side of things and I think Otto definitely embodied that
1: I think it's also fair to say that his personal life was uh, uh, probably suffered because of his obsession with his his company. I think he was married a total of four times. He wasn't known for being particularly involved with his uh, domestic life, you know, didn't spend a lot of time with his kids and so on, at least according to these reports, which just sort of the, the price you pay, I guess, for being a, an entrepreneur in some cases and being married for better or worse to your company. And it did come at a pretty steep personal price to him. And I think eventually he did invite, was it his two sons and his son-in-law to help him run the business?
0: Yeah, he would eventually invite, yeah, he had two sons and two sons-in-laws from his other uh, two daughters, uh, but even before that, he his basically his right-hand man for the longest period of time was his nephew, Ted Oser, from one of his sisters. And Ted was with the company for, for nearly 40 years or slightly more than 40 years before he eventually was kind of uh, unceremoniously pushed out the door when his um, sons and sons-in-law Um, came in as executives of the company. Right.
1: Yeah, that was kind of uh, making a a bad problem worse in terms of how the company was being run because I I think it's fair to say that none of those individuals showed a particular aptness or skill for running the company and didn't do much to resolve the the problems that were evident with Orkin's uh, organizational structure and so on. And I think they did uh, eventually force Otto out of the company. They they had a, a doctor have him declared mentally incompetent. Sort of took control of the voting stock in the company, and poor Otto was eventually rendered by his standards almost penniless. And it took a court order to increase the payout from his trust, which was sort of an American tragedy as well that he had gone from rags to riches and then relative penury just because of what looks like was uh, intra-family squabbling and a sort of power struggle for the company.
0: Yeah, there aren't too many facts, of course, in the book. There were rumors within the company in the late 50s and early 60s about whether or not Otto had become even more strange and quirky in his old life. And the book suggested that his sons and son-in-law kind of took advantage of this or exaggerated facts or even fabricated facts in order to acquire the controlling interest in the company. And, And like you said, they did convince Otto to give them the controlling interest. And right after that, they had him committed and declared incompetent right after they acquired control of the company. It's not a good situation.
1: Yeah, so it's regardless of, of what the truth is there, it's, it's uh, like I said, an American tragedy. The situation played out like that for Otto, but eventually he, he did pass away after having his circumstances somewhat improved by court order and a payout from his trust. So none of the situation would get resolved until the Orkin family had the good fortune to run into Wayne Rollins, who happened to be in the market for fast-growing businesses that he could acquire and add to the Rollins portfolio. So I believe that was around 1964, if I'm not mistaken.
0: Yep. So the Orkin family had let it be known that they were willing to be sold to someone for the right price. And the person they had a connection with, kind of their quote-unquote investment banker, although not technically an investment banker, was Coleman of the tobacco family. Right. This Cullman had his set up his own investment fund and was looking for companies trading cheaply and had recurring revenues and that could be eventually turned around in, in due course. And this investment group had acquired a significant number of shares in Orkin, but they were also looking for a larger entity to help them buy the business entirely and the family that they eventually found was the Rollins family up in, in Delaware. And Rollins family also began in North Georgia. And this is going to be another future separate episode about the Rollins family. But John Rollins and his brother, O. Wayne Rollins, grew up in North Georgia, dirt poor farmer family and another rags to riches story. But both wound up in Delaware. John had a business uh, as an auto dealer and also became one of the largest fleet leasing companies in America. And both brothers eventually acquired several radio stations and TV stations. And it was in 1964 that they got wind of this deal that Orkin was potentially up for sale. And they got very interested in the situation. They saw the great qualities of the business. Growing service business didn't require much capital to grow. Winded it's back with population growth in the South?
2: Very dependable recurring revenues, right? You have Otto who realized that rather than servicing, say, once a year, it was much more efficient for the customer to do one big kind of clean out and then do a monitoring service where you come back fairly frequently to make sure that everything's under control.
0: It was it was a, a monthly frequency, and another thing that we were talking about before we started recording was just the size of the business at the time in the 60s. Orkin was the largest pest control business in North America by, I think, a factor of 40 or 50.
1: Yeah, there's sorry, there was a McKenzie report that was relied on by the Rollins family doing their due diligence, and the McKenzie report came back and indicated that there were Seven to eight thousand pest control firms and a four hundred and eighty million dollar market value for the industry. And of that, Rollins made up a little bit less than ten percent at forty million in revenues. And the average pest control firm was making maybe seventy to sorry, excuse me, fifty to seventy five thousand revenues. So it gives you in in two ways the scale of of Orkin relative to its competitors, but also the potential for Orkin to expand within the industry just by acquisition and bolting on these these smaller shops to their platform. I think maybe Dodd can correct me here, but I believe as a prudential was a big part of this transaction with some convertible shares.
0: Yeah, there there were several investors that enabled this transaction to occur. And to be more specific, this was one of the very first recorded leveraged buyouts in American corporate history. So basically the entire deal was financed with debt in one form or another. And even the equity that the Rollins brothers put in was borrowed. But Prudential was a significant investor. They provided 10 million or slightly over 10 million of debt help finance this transaction.
1: Yeah, I know. I believe it was all convertible to give them some upside if uh, Rollins shares were to appreciate after the deal. And I think one other point uh, with the LBO angle is that it was probably the first leverage buyout to be made based on a company that didn't have a lot of assets. I mean, very few assets, but it was based on the future earnings of the company, which was hitherto so something that wasn't done it seemed like every buyout was based on the hard assets the book value of the of the company not necessarily what they were projected to earn given a an assumed rate of growth so in some ways it was sort of a watershed moment in american finance the changing the way that people thought about these asset like companies and how they should be valued.
0: Right, right. That's a great point. Money was borrowed not against the assets, but the stream of earnings that could be provided, which was another very unique thing about the deal.
1: And and the brand recognition, which Americans by this point obviously had become somewhat used to thinking of in terms of established brands and how much those brands would be worth. So that was a big factor in it as well, is, is how much is the Orkin name worth? as as an icon in American culture, uh, especially after decades of advertisements, and Orkin was one of the first to use TV ads heavily. So it was well-established in the mindset of the American consumer.
0: Use of advertising was kind of the next step in the evolution of Orkin's experience. They started doing TV ads in the early 50s, and the the very first one that they produced was kind of a live-action advertisement. They had a, a sequence where... A woman was basically screaming at the top of her lungs, standing on the couch because she had seen a rat or a mouse in the house. This was an advertisement for Orkin's services, but they quickly shut down that kind of live action, kind of scare tactic method of communicating their services. And they switched to 10 second, 20 second, 60 second spots of an animated series starring Otto the Orkin Man, which was this animated pesticide spray can that was constantly doing battle against an animated roach and rat and termite. It got to be hugely popular. This particular series of ads, I read several articles that kids loved them so much that parents were, were able to promise their kids they could watch this ad by Orkin in order for their kids to go to bed. The kids would write in to Orkin hundreds of letters, fan mail, Every year and would even call up the uh, Orkin phone number to ask about. They saw on the
1: television. Yeah. to ask for Otto.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Where is Otto? Or to ask about the other characters in the show. And the telephone operators were told to be patient and don't discourage. But it was a hugely successful ad campaign for, for Orkin.
1: It's you can kind of see how the company was what or what the Rollinses saw in Orkin as this sort of emerging dominant brand in this highly attractive industry that was so fragmented and the runway for growth was pretty well established and as another note, it's kind of interesting looking at the pest control industry overall. it was growing at seven eight nine percent when Rollins acquired Orkin and over the last Thirty plus years, as it has also been growing at high single digits, so it's remarkable how steady the growth in the industry has been for a very long period of time. Really, Orkin has grown as well as the one of the largest players, but now there's something like twenty thousand pest control companies in the United States. So the total number of, of firms operating in it has more than doubled since 1964 but the total market value is something like uh, 22 billion from 480 million in 1964 so it's just been phenomenal growth for a long period
0: it's been such a steady grower for such a long time it's been growing in line with GDP plus another 3 or 4% on top of that the very early years of growth and just to give you A sense of the effectiveness of the advertising campaign uh, that they embarked on in the 50s. Orkin sales doubled in just less than three years when they began the ad campaign in 1950, 1951. Went from roughly 6 million revenues in, in 1951 and wound up with over 12 million in 1954. Largely thanks to those TV advertisements. And the articles also said that out of the unsolicited calls that came in through the telephone, about 70% of them were calling because they had seen that series of TV advertisements, which is really impressive.
1: Yeah, and they, over time, they have sort of evolved with their advertising strategies going from the live action to the cartoons, and now they've got the Orkin man who's and the tie and, and the white shirt with epaulets. And for a period of time, they sort of rode the coattails of the Terminator fad with the Orkin man <laughs> as a robotic exterminator, uh, which is also a widely popular advertising strategy. So they're very skilled in terms of connecting with customers and setting themselves aside from be the general population of pest control operators which has played no small part in their success over time.
0: Yeah, and another part of their success was, I'm sure, because they were the largest and also considered themselves the best, they took a very strong lead with the rest of the industry itself. They played very important parts in setting up and supporting the industry association Every one of the executives at Orkin realized that they needed to turn perception of the industry from a trade into more of a profession. And that meant standardizing practices, making sure that they were using safe chemicals and methods of exterminating pests. And because of their size and resources, Orkin was able to eventually hire a lot of professionals and college-educated people beginning after World War II. One of the most important hires was a man by the name of Felton, who had a lot of experience in the government. He came straight out of the U.S. Public Health Service, and he was hired in 1946 by Orkin, and he centralized purchasing, warehousing, and shipping of chemicals and supplies, and he also was the very first one to standardize and write manuals and create training courses for managers and supervisors. This was a, a long, slow process for Orkin, but they would continually drive themselves to become better and better, standardize more, make things simpler, not just to protect customers and give them the best service, but also to ensure that their employees would stay on for decades and decades at Orkin. And they've always had problems with employee churn. There was a point in time where it got to be as high as of employees leaving every year. Does that number ring true to you?
1: It seems, it seems right. And then they, one of the things that they did was they established a, a profit sharing plan. Yeah. Some other benefits that were not so widespread at the time. So they were really focused on trying to reduce that churn and keep their employees happy so that they wouldn't either go out on their own or leave the company. So they were an early innovator in some ways for some of those employee benefits that we kind of take for granted today, but were not so widespread at the time.
0: Yeah, and that that's absolutely true. They provided pensions and health care very early on when it was not required in the 40s and 50s. And that reminds me of another story about the early, early days of working. Otto had a, a branch manager that got into the habit of you know, providing for his immediate employees to the extent of signing, you know, or co-signing leases or co-signing loans for employees' homes or vehicles. And Otto loved this, that this one branch manager was going to that length for his own employees. And he eventually expected that all other branch managers do similar things.
1: And he chastised somebody who didn't do it. Yeah. And he
0: he chastised either a a nephew or or some family relation who, for whatever reason, chose not to do that. He sent this uh, family member a, a harsh letter saying, I expect you to do this. The employees are the ones that are providing for you in your income. It's the least that you can do for them. Please sign the included loan in return in the included envelope. That's something that you'll, yeah, you would never see or rarely see someone doing for their own employee today.
1: It's interesting to see back to the the Rollins part of the story of what they recognized was not necessarily working well at work and how they thought they could streamline things and so one of the first moves they made was to remove I believe the commission based system and put everybody on salaries for the most part there was going to be uniformity across the organization which I think rubbed some people the wrong way because it was very lucrative for them to be on the commission-based system.
0: Well, gosh, yes. Well, it was commission-based in some places, and some people were earning a percentage of gross revenues in other places. And you know, in general, many of the old guard who'd been around for many decades were earning twice or triple what Otto himself was paid. I mean, so they were earning a lot of money with the old system.
1: Yeah. And so Rollins' administration put kind of an end to all of that and really streamlined the corporation, made it right-sized it, as they say, made it super efficient and started to scale it up. And I think for the most part, it was the star performer for their portfolio of companies for almost almost right away after the acquisition in
0: 1964. Yeah, it was the dominant portion of their portfolio of businesses. and they and Rollins would similar to what they did with their radio business, I think that the genesis of the radio business was a combined effort to give free advertising to John's auto business. and they were they were believers of kind of synergies of having multiple related businesses that could uh, benefit from each other's services or offerings in a, in a beneficial way, in a one plus one equals three kind of way. Rollins Inc. would eventually add several related service businesses. They got into lawn care. They got into indoor plants, designing and maintaining them. They got into uh, protective services businesses that likely competed with companies like ADT. They got into a maid service business, commercial building services.
1: To to some extent, and maybe this is going to be a stretch, you can kind of see how maybe they were thinking of their portfolio the same way Amazon thinks about theirs, which is that they want to dominate every aspect of your home. They had the pest control. They had the lawn and garden, which they assumed there was a lot of similarities, I should say, between the two where you treat your house, your indoor dwelling for pests. You might also treat your lawn for fungus or whatever. And so it just seemed natural that you would have this company providing the same service. And then of course you have the alarm system, which Amazon, you've got the Alexa, you've got the ring, all these different apparatuses that are inside your house. And so I think to some extent their concept was to provide a total house care portfolio of Of companies to consumers, whether or not they thought about it in those terms, I don't know, but it seems like that was perhaps the idea. The recurring theme, though, was that pest control outshone everything else in their portfolio, and it became readily apparent that that was going to be the driver of growth. And so it just didn't make sense to have all of these other non core assets. And I believe they divested the uh, home security and the lawn and garden businesses somewhat in the late 1990s or mid to late 1990s
0: yeah but even before that we forgot to mention kind of their two biggest sideshows they had bought a company that provided services and products to the oil and gas industry. Ah, that's true. Which, which I think is still publicly traded today. But, anyways, that was one. The other was their traditional and foundational TV and radio stations, Rollins Communications. They spun those two companies out at the same time in the 90s, and they were still after that period um, left with Orkin as their primary revenue generator, plus these several others of these uh, smaller, much smaller service businesses that they eventually sold.
1: So we've talked a lot about how great the pest control business is and the economics are favorable and so on. But there was a point when Rollins slash Orkin really did face a crisis, which was in the mid 90s. And in 1988, the government regulators had pulled the termiticide, chlordane, out of service. And this was a highly effective termiticide and pretty much destroyed the termite colonies once and for all. And Orkin had made a promise that they would, uh, basically a lifetime guarantee, that they would provide termite service if, if they were to come back. And so I believe the story goes that with chlordane being removed, some of the treatments that were used in place of chlordane were not as effective. And so what Orkin faced was a lot of claims based on these lifetime guarantees. And so the termites simply were not going away. And so they had to go back and honor a lot of these service guarantees and lost a fair amount of money trying to correct what wasn't bad work, but just simply ineffective chemical treatments in the, the late 80s, early 90s. And And so it took a lot of focus on the part of the company to figure out a way to overcome that, whether it was different tactics in terms of how they attack the termite colonies, some different chemical mixes, of more effective termiticides, and so on. But that was perhaps the one crisis circa 1994, 1995, that the company really faced flattening revenues, a drop in earnings per share, and a fairly aggressive client base that was irritated that these termite jobs were somewhat ineffective and coming after Orkin and the public sphere.
0: I think you're understating the problem. They were, it sounded to me like they were very ineffective. (laughs) Orkin started giving these lifetime guarantees in the late 40s. They advertised that they had a surety bond from a Massachusetts insurance company And they were using a truly effective chemical, like you said, chlordane, for many, many decades. And the replacement chemicals for chlordane were not even half as effective as what the, the manufacturers stated. So they continued on, with, unfortunately, with these lifetime guarantees, which eventually they figured out was the wrong thing to do, but they, to their honor and to their reputation, they did the right thing in terms of setting aside a huge amount of money. It was over a hundred million dollars that they reserved to make good on their promise and make their customers whole.
1: Yeah, shows a a very disciplined approach to the long-term focus in terms of you could have paid yourself a dividend or bought back stock or have a short-term mindset, but instead they refocused on winning back their client confidence and making good those guarantees and uh, playing the long game in terms of preserving their brand and reputation.
0: And they shifted obviously from they can no longer give lifetime guarantees, but they did offer three-year, five-year, or seven-year guarantees with the chemicals that they could use.
1: Yeah, and I think since then, the Orkin story has been fairly straightforward. They've been growing through every sort of economic cycle, hardly noticed the dot-com collapse, the financial crisis. I think they grew revenues in the mid-single digits, the industrial recession of 2015, 2016, hardly a blip. COVID was probably a boost to their business with people spending more time at home and recognizing more critters and things in their houses.
0: Company management on conference calls cited that specifically with more people sheltering in place at home just provided even greater opportunity for them to see all the bugs and critters that were actually inside their home. So they did just fine.
1: So... One thing to ask is what is the future of this industry? I mean, there's still extremely extreme fragmentation in the marketplace. It's still growing at GDP plus. The population of the United States is moving south and southwest and southeast, which just like it was true in in Otto's time, that's where the bugs are most active, which all seems like a net positive to me, as far as the future goes,
0: I, I think it's as bright as it has been ever and perhaps even better because there's still a deluge of people yet to Immigrate to the southern states. You've got a lot of people in the north that are going to want to retire and move to someplace like Florida. South is where all the bugs are. Another constant is going to be a long period of continued consolidation within the industry. Orkin slash Rollins is one of the two largest in the business in the world. Their other large competitor is Rent-A-Kill which is based in the UK, but they have recently acquired Terminix in the United States. So those are the two big players in North America now. And Orkin roughly has about 25% market share. Terminix might be slightly larger than that, but there's still, it's a highly fragmented market. Like you said, there's up to 20,000 individual pest control businesses. And, And looking at Orkin Specifically, I noted in one of my more recent quarterly letters to clients that in just the past three years, Orkin has acquired roughly 100 businesses. Orkin also has a a franchising aspect to the business, which gives it a guaranteed stream of potential acquisitions now and into the future. So it's a great business to be in. The wind is still at its back and probably going to be blowing Pretty well for many decades into the future.
2: It, it's hard to see how that M and A pace doesn't continue for a very long time. And just the, the two distinct advantages are, are: one, you're you're rolling up these very very small businesses, you can consolidate and reduce back of house operating expenses. But also, you're further able to better negotiate uh, scale advantages when it comes to sourcing all of the chemicals that you. And so there's really no other company out there that can probably pay a better price and still get a better return.
1: And I would say, too, that the lion's share of Orkin's revenues is corporate clients, I believe. And there is a fair amount of mandatory uh, service that those companies, you think restaurants, hotels they are required to provide. So we oftentimes think of our experience with pest control from our own perspective, whether we see roaches or mice or whatever, and maybe it's a one-time service. And as I understand it, the the real generator of revenue are those commercial clients that, that have no choice but to have established service contracts, apartment complexes, and so on that have to do it on a scheduled basis. And, and it's preventative maintenance, and it's a small investment on their part to ensure happy residents, clients, what have you. So uh, that's always a boon to their services as well.
0: I think having a a large national brand is also a significant advantage, even though assuming you have experience in the business, you could easily start your own business. So the barrier to entry is not that huge, but I think Orkin and also Terminix Rentakill, having scale gives them certain advantages, like Devin just mentioned. One is that you can purchase supplies and materials at a cheaper negotiated price, but you also have, for sure, standards and education and training, which other smaller players, mom and pop shops, probably don't have. And if you were able to take a quick look at the article from the late 80s I sent you about this awful example of a Texas homeowner contracting a termite service with, what was it, A1 termite controllers, some small local business. They chose not to go with Orkin, but this uh, small local businessman gave them termite services and basically lied through his teeth about every single aspect of the service he provided the uh, homeowners were intelligent enough to inquire about whether the guy would be using Chlordane. He said, no, I'm using some other chemical, which was a lie, and totally botched the job, used Chlordane, and basically rendered the house unlivable. This homeowner couple were in courts for many, many years against this local business, against his insurance company, against their own home insurance company. So <laughs> you'd rather go with, hopefully, a large national brand that has... The financial firepower to back their offering and to actually do what they say they're going to do.
1: Yeah, and I would say too that having had, as I'm sure we all have as homeowners, our own experiences with pests, we think of the mom and pop shops, or probably by their own admission capable of doing only uh, certain kinds of jobs for the most part and then other jobs that are beyond their skill set or their means they they refer out and i can imagine a world where most of the residential one-off jobs would be fulfilled by those mom-and-pop shops but the big contracts whether it's military installations corporate contracts, apartment complexes. It's almost certainly going to go to a scaled firm with negotiating power that has the capability to show up, service multiple places, has the capacity to do that, and I just I think that's probably where the real money's made and I don't see that changing.
2: So it's all kind of circles back to Otto Orkin's brilliance on focusing on pivoting from producing the chemicals to to service. And like Doug just laid out, the growth algorithm for this company, you know, you have new customers, but a lot of it comes from, I'd imagine, just incremental pricing over years. And the very reason they have pricing power is because of that brand recognition. There's a very good reason why they no longer focus on producing the chemicals. And it's that you have a very small list of super scale chemical producers that you're not going to really be able to compete with. And that's just a complete commodity. But something that's not commoditized is that that brand recognition and the true expertise that comes with knowing how to do every service under the sun well.
0: Here's one thing interesting thing that we maybe we can think about. Are can we think of any similarities between Otto and Forrest Mars? We both read that Forrest Mars was kind of had his own obsession with the precision and the cleanliness of the equipment. Where he would stop production if there was a, a misprint of a an M on one of the M and Ms. Right. What other What other anecdotes do you remember?
1: Well, so I would take a step back and I would say they they have some similarities and some huge differences. So the similarities would be they recognize the opportunity in taking what was sort of a local or regional company at best into more of a, a national enterprise and was really among the first in that industry to do that and so kind of starting from scratch and expanding that was something that they shared on the other hand Forrest Mars was a far more skilled administrator to the point where he, he laid out a handbook for his employees and his his managers to follow and and Orkin you some and, people and have he was no also idea. highly educated that's true he was an you by training. Okay. But his philosophy in, in Forrest Mars case was that there would be total transparency about what everybody was making. Everybody knew what everybody was making inside of those, those cubicle farms. But in Orkin's case, you had multiple compensation structures and nobody knew what the hell anybody else was making and probably just assumed they had it just as good or just as bad as everybody else. So from an organizational standpoint, Forrest was probably top-notch. Orkin left a lot to be desired, but they both succeeded in their own ways. So it does kind of show you that maybe it's as simple as a rising tide raises all boats, and that helped in, in Orkin's case with pest control. You know, also in Forrest Mars' case, the confectionery industry was extremely fragmented, and he was a to identify and attack those weaker players and really work with scale to dominate along with a couple other players. So yeah, it is kind of an interesting parallel. They couldn't have been two different men um, as far as their personalities go, but they both succeeded in their own right.
0: Yeah, that's a great point about their differences. Again, Forrest was highly educated and engineer. Otto, I don't even think, finished high school. Forrest, you could probably describe him as very aggressive, combative even at times. I think Otto was aggressive in his own way, but also very self-conscious about his lack of education. And thus he wasn't really great public speaker. And also the book described him as an extraordinarily hard worker and obsessive in some ways, but also not really much of a visionary, thinking of the long-term future of the company, whereas his Nephew Ted was a great spokesman for the company and could inspire people and was the visionary for many, many years.
1: Yeah, you could think of Otto Orkin and I don't mean this in any as a slight or anything, but in some ways he's almost an accidental millionaire. I mean, he had a, a good product, a good service, a good brand, and he just rolled with it and took one at one opportunity as it came and took advantage of it. Whereas Forrest had everything laid out in great detail. He had a roadmap and he attacked it. And if you didn't abide by that, you were gone. I mean, just single minded in his focus. I guess it shows that both types of personalities can succeed and both very skilled at what they did, but took totally different paths to get there.
0: Well, I think that's another question that is worth asking, especially given Munger's passing, whether, you know, to what extent is anyone's success product of skill or luck? I think in Otto's case, I would put it down to, A good bit of luck if Otto had not been given that job as the family rat catcher it is unlikely he would have created the company that we now know today as Orkin.
1: Or if they hadn't been allowed to leave the Russian empire.
0: Or if, they had, if something had happened along the way of their journey from Latvia to the United States. I mean, Mung, Munger's own example, he shared with us that he was playing with you know, like a seven-year-old girl somewhere and a rabid dog comes up to attack them both. They fended off, but the girl was bitten. Munger was somehow unscathed. The girl died like a week or two later.
1: Yeah, I mean, the role of luck in anybody's life, I think, is understated because the more things work out, the less you understand that, right? I mean, all of the car crashes each of us could have been in, too many to count, but we do remember the accidents that do happen. And so to some extent, it is just a probability thing. But as far as the business success goes, luck can do only so much. And I always think of it that what luck is what happens when preparation meets opportunity. And Otto did have the good fortune to get that government contract, but he damn sure took advantage of it. And he used that as the stepping stone to the next thing and the next thing. And he made some mistakes along the way. He may have trusted the wrong people in the family to run his business and so on. So in some ways, he was unlucky at the end.
0: When it comes to Mars, Forrest was able to either negotiate, convince, bully his other family members into selling him a, a, you know, a full controlling interest in the company, but the company was still with technically within family hands, right? Sure. And so Orkin, with the second generation, his sons and sons-in-law, eventually just totally got out of the business.
1: And haven't been heard from since, right? I mean, I don't know. I have no
0: idea what they're up to. That's not even something I attempted to research, but they got out with 20 or 30 million, if I remember correctly, in the mid-1960s. and A huge
1: amount of money for the time, yeah.
0: Still a lot, but if they had been able to find the next executive leader, next executive team to take the company to the next level, which they did find, but they were not able to benefit from.
1: I think one element is missing from this part of the conversation, which is would Orkin be the force that it is today had it stayed in family hands and not been acquired by Rollins? And I think it's obviously no, it would not. I mean, it was due for a change. The organization was was just too disjointed, too disorganized, too dysfunctional. At the top, even though probably the broad industry trends were supporting it, at some point, I think the bigger competitors probably would have taken advantage of those weaknesses. And so Wayne Rollins and, and his group, I mean, undoubtedly instrumental in making it the, the force that it is today. And so that's kind of the challenge, I think, for Mars and its first real generation outside of Mars family control is what will these outside actors who are more not just family, but professional administrators, how will they take it to the next level in a fiercely competitive industry? That's also something to watch when a family business transitions to outside people who are now running the company. What do they change? What do they keep the same? And and how does it evolve and, and what kind of uh, effect they have, for better or worse? I have one other question for you guys maybe to think about, which is, or what would be the biggest bear case or threat, maybe not just to Orkin, but to the industry as a whole, a global cooling cycle that kills all the bugs have <laughs> mini ice age? I don't know. It could be a lot of things, but a lot of them seem far-fetched. But I just was curious what you guys think might be the the downside here for this case study.
0: It seems to me the most likely scenario would be a recurrence of the chlordane period where government pulled a highly effective chemical from being used to combat termites in this case. Or just a continued growing resistance by pests to whatever chemicals are being used currently. I'm not aware of anything that is likely to happen along those lines, but I think those are probably the two most likely negatives to the entire industry. But knowing the past history, Orkin and the industry got through the Chlordane episode, and I'm sure lots of competitors probably lost business or went out of business during that period of time. And it was only players like Orkin that had the resources to survive through such an episode and were able to benefit and thrive afterward.
2: Those are both very fair guesses, I think. Basically exactly what I was thinking, but I will add, I think that even if there is a similar occurrence in terms of regulation, barring a key chemical for a certain treatment that they provide, the total risk to them will probably be less pronounced because as far as I know, they've cut the lifetime guarantee for everything. And, and that was probably the, the truly problematic part that really compounded the issue for them, not necessarily the, the loss of efficacy. In their treatments and so it, it's still difficult to imagine a, uh, a tail risk for them that would result in a, a similar financial loss.
0: I guess the next most likely thing would be to as they continue growing the Rollins family has slowly left the company whoever is going to be leading over the next 10 to 20 years if they aren't capable or if they make the wrong decisions that could be what upsets the company specifically but again when it comes to the industry as a whole i th- i still think the greatest threat would be some form of regulation or or an inability to use an effective chemical such that people think there's no value in in having a regular pest service come to their their residents, but on the flip side, you'd have to find something effective, or you'd have to make concessions because businesses like restaurants and food plants or distribution plants—they have standards of having uh, no pests, no—or not no pests, but <laughs> there, there are so many FDA regulations that regulate the maximum amount of bug parts or rat feces in, in certain types of food. So they're going to have to find a way to deal with that, even if a, a certain chemical or a method of pest control is regulated out of existence.
2: It's not optional. It's not a luxury. It's absolutely mandatory. And, and it's probably a pretty small
1: cost of their overall cost of doing business compared to rent and insurance and everything else.
2: Look at hundreds of millions of dollars of real estate versus termites. It's like, well, yeah, are you going to pay for it or not? I mean, it's not really a question,
1: right? One little nerdy observation I would like to make, and I've tweeted this before, but it kind of comes back to it is, it's a pest control company, sure, but Like so many other things, it's really a chemistry company, you know, the formulation, maybe not the formulation, but certainly the application of chemical products that are hazardous. And you think of how many industries that we deal with, we talk about, really it all boils down to chemistry, whether it's pharmaceuticals, petroleum, pest control. I just think that's kind of interesting is that chemistry is really kind of the building block, the main building block of all these enterprises and these industries. And part of that is me wishing I had paid more attention in chemistry class. But, you know, the more I think about these things, it really is an applied chemicals company that services customers.
0: Yeah, as my public health law professor frequently told us, we're all just bags of chemicals. And don't you forget it. That includes insects and pests.
1: That's especially true for young college kids, given their alcoholic (laughs)
2: intake. (laughs) So so I, I was thinking more as to the biggest risk potentially facing the company. A pretty, perhaps unlikely, but possible scenario is is becoming ever more convinced of such a bright future, leveraging up, extracting cash, becoming more aggressive at which the multiples they pay for for all of this uh, M&A activity and things get a little bit too top heavy and a gust of wind comes along. We've seen that happen to plenty of companies in industries that they just kind of overestimated their own
0: ability. Certainly a possibility. I think it's a company that can They have a lot of recurring revenues. They have inflation escalators in their contracts.
2: Re- respectable margins?
0: Oh, yeah. They're above 50% gross margins um, for a service company, which is, I think, pretty high, slightly above average. And they think the company itself thinks it can go slightly high, higher over a long period of time, and they have pricing power. So they can stand to lever up. you enjoyed this episode head over to PreferredSharesPodcast.com. on the site there's a full list of resources and additional data for you to dig into and on the site you can subscribe to the podcast directly so all future episodes land directly in your inbox if you want to support preferred shares the single most helpful thing you can do is to spread the word share preferred shares with others who love business history as much as you and we do